0: Hey, Cornerstone. Man, super glad you're here. We're, we're going to have a conversation today that, if we can apply this to our lives, is going to change our lives. I am just super excited about what we're going to talk about and what the potential that it has. For you and me. But real quick, just want to do a shout out to Santan, to our Scottsdale campuses. I don't know if you know this on the uh, Chandler campus or not, but our Santan campus and our uh, Scottsdale campus are both growing right now, and we're super, super proud of them. Yeah, they're doing a great job. Keep it up. All right, so here we go. Uh, we're talking about stressed. Here's my guess. My guess is, is that uh, as we've come so far, there's people in the room and you go, man, this has been so helpful. I mean, there's been some conversations and I've taken those conversations home and I've applied them in my life and my life is different. I mean, it's just, it's just made a big difference. But my guess is also, there's some people in the room that say, Lynn, look, I, I've listened. I've, I've done what you asked me to do so far. And I'm just telling you, I'm still facing a ton of stress in my life. I'm I'm still struggling, and, and I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be unspiritual. I'm not trying to be hard-headed. I'm just telling you, what we've said so far hasn't gotten me far enough yet. Let me tell you what I think is happening, and I think today's conversation may be the one that helps land this uh, for you in your life. My guess is this. Every one of us has, a mo- has moments in life where you and I say, where is God? I mean, what, what just happened? How... How could that have happened? I've been faithful. I've been following along. I've been doing the right thing. I've been, I've been you know, I, I, I'm so much further in my spiritual walk than I've ever been at any other time. How can things be going this bad? Where's God? in the midst of this. If God is here, how can my finances have just literally fallen? I didn't want those medical bills. They happened to me. And now look where I'm at. I didn't want my marriage to be in this place. I I thought I was doing what I needed to do. And I'm just telling you, it's in trouble right now. All of us have where is God moments in our lives. And if the world was perfect, Here's what would happen when we had a where's God moment. We'd we'd have that moment. There'd be that initial uh, instant of fear. We'd say, okay, God, this is really, really messed up. Where are you? And in that instant, we would look up and we'd see God riding in on a white horse. We'd go, oh, well, here he comes. I'm okay. But isn't the reality that that almost never happens? That you and I experience, we encounter these where in the world are you God moments, and then it ushers in a season, it it ushers in a period of time where God appears to be just absolutely absent. And often, you know, what we figure out later on is, oh, oh, well, there's God, you know, a year later or six months later. I mean, there's God, and it's so clear what he was doing, and it's so obvious that he had his hand in everything But isn't it true that this period of time here, from that moment when things began to fall apart, you went, God, where are you? And then God seemed to be absolutely absent. Isn't it true that that's the stressful part of our lives? This is the moment we go, wow. I mean, if you're not going to do anything, if you're not going to show, if you're not going to be here, then apparently I better fix this myself. I better navigate this moment because you're too busy. You forgot I wasn't high enough on the price. But how do I do the in-between time? And isn't that in-between time the part that is so filled with anxiety, so filled with stress on our parts? Here's what we need to say today. That what you and I believe about the in-between time changes everything. That if in the in-between time you and I believe that although the evidence doesn't back it and and although I couldn't prove this to you, but I believe that God is present with me right now. That that knowledge, that knowledge, I'm not alone, that knowledge that that he's actually there and he's still in control, that knowledge is going to furnish me with a level of peace that makes stress and anxiety absolutely unnecessary. But if in this moment... If in this moment my thought is, you know what, maybe God is detached. Maybe, maybe God is absent right now. Maybe God is distracted or unavailable to help in this moment. Then I am going to absolutely panic. I am gonna, I'm going to live this moment with absolute fear. And isn't it true some of the worst decisions we've made in our lives. Some of the biggest regrets that we have. Some of the places that we wish we could have a do-over is what we did after there was the where in the heck are you God moment and before we ever saw God happen when we tried to navigate this moment not believing that God was there to help. What you and I believe about either the presence or the absence of God during the in-between time will absolutely change our lives. Let me see if this helps. I've got a dear friend. His name is Bill Bush. Bill Bush is the pastor of Rock Point Church, which is right over in Queen Creek. Great friend of mine. And uh, he tells this story about when he first went off to Bible College. He went to Bible College at Biola, so it's kind of in the downtown L.A. area. He's there as a freshman. And not too long after he gets there, a couple weeks in, he meets these two girls who are friends. And he decides to invite them to go out with him to In-N-Out Burger to hang out because he's trying to figure out which one of the two he wants to date. Okay, So sure enough, here it's evening time, classes are all over, and he takes these two girls out to In-N-Out Burger to hang out and to flirt. Now here's what Bill hadn't figured out at this point. Uh, Biola is actually located in a really, really, really rough neighborhood in L.A. and In-N-Out burger is perfectly safe in the daylight. But In-N-Out burger ain't so fun at night. And so sure enough, here they come in and they walk in. And uh, lo and behold, they're the only three customers in the whole place. So they order uh, their burgers and their shakes. They go off kind of into the back corner where uh, Bill can proceed to flirt. Uh, While he's back there... Uh, In pulls a lowrider. And out of the lowrider, four gang members. And so sure enough, they get out, they uh, walk into In-N-Out Burger. Bill said, I knew I was in trouble when the guy behind the counter, the only other person in In In-N-Out, left the counter and went back into the back room when these four guys came in. And so now it's him... These two girls, four gang members, and no one to order. And so he's sitting there in that moment, and his mind is starting to go, go, go with all sorts of scenarios. And uh, he begins to pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, don't let them see the girls, because I know I'm in trouble if they see the girls. And sure enough, uh, these four gang members look over and hey, man, and they're coming on over, and now they're beginning to... De- to just basically their job was to humiliate Bill in front of the girls, terrify everybody because that would make them feel like big men. And so they're, they're getting into this. And so, again, Bill's mind spinning is going, you know, i, I got to do something. I mean, this can go bad uh, really, really quick. And so he's singing to himself, uh, if I punch the leader in the throat, is, is that a good plan? Does that cause the others to jump me with switch and play? Where does, you know, where does this go? And he just say, the more this goes, the longer it goes. I am just filled with terror. I mean, there is no good way out. I'm in the back. How do you do this? And then. And then. Walking through the front door of In-N-Out Burger. The biggest black police officer he'd ever seen in his life. I mean, this guy was huge. He was the incredible hulk of police officers. Bill said he was in, you know, that L.A. short-sleeve thing, and and he had had biceps that were like bursting the shirt. When he walked in the doorway, he had to bend down to get in. And he said instantly, instantly, the entire tenor of the room changed. Gang members became model citizens. They set up straight. All of a sudden, they were walking politely toward the exit. They were saying things like, yes, sir, no, sir. It was like a movie. You know, as as they were getting ready to pass the police officer on the way out, he reached out, put his shoulder on the lead, you know, head guy's shoulder. Said, you leaving the dance so soon, boy? And he said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And here's what what Bill said. The presence of that police officer changed everything. I went from panic to absolute calm because he was in the room. So you get the moment. When you and I answer the question, when when you and i are living in that in between season of our lives is god there because how you answer that question will absolutely change the trajectory of your heart and the behavior of your life you will either live that season in absolute fear and dread and panic scrambling for whatever solution you'll be punching gang members in the throat or you'll be going it's all good it's all good because God is here with me in the in-between land. And So here's the question. Here's the question we're going to answer today. It's the question that's going to change our lives as we leave this place. What would someone do who's exactly like you? What would someone do who has the marriage that you have right now that you're trying to navigate? What would someone do who's facing the financial challenges that you're facing right now do? What would would a single Christian adult who's trying to navigate singleness in a culture that says sleep with whoever you want to do, compromise as much as you want to compromise, what would someone who's exactly where you're at right now do if they were absolutely confident that God was with them? how you answer that question on the in-between time changes everything. Let's grab our Bibles. Because there's a story of a guy uh, who lives this moment. uh, Who starts out uh, with a, where in the world are you, God? And how can this possibly be happening to me, God, if you're there and you're in control? And if that weren't enough, as you and I unpack his, literally every step... Seems like God is even more absent. That things just get continually worse, and then we're going to land this thing at a. Oh my goodness! There's God. There's God. But how He lives the in-between time is what makes His story remarkable. And you and I get a chance to peek in. So it's Genesis, it's chapter uh, thirty-seven. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, I can give you a hint. It's somewhere near the beginning. Seminary got me that. Genesis chapter thirty-seven. Uh, it's the story of Joseph, and a ton of us in this room, you know this story. But look, 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 look! Don't you dare! Don't you dare! Don't you dare run ahead because you're going to run ahead and you're going to go, oh, it all turns out okay, and it's all like, no, don't do that, because that's not how the story occurred in the life of Joseph. This story unfolds over years. And so I'm just going to ask you to take fresh eye and just live the story. Live, live, live the absolute complexity. Live the the confusion that's going on in the moment. Live the conflict that's happening in the moment. And just simply say, if I had been there, if I had had to live that, how would I have navigated that moment? And then learn from a guy named Joseph who's going to live every moment of this story as if he actually believes that God's with him and that he's not alone. Genesis chapter 37. Uh, Here's some background. Here's what's happened up until this point. Uh, Joseph is the son of a guy by the name of Jacob. Jacob's going to end up being kind of the father of modern-day Israel. Jacob has 12 sons. The 12 sons end up being the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph is number 11, so he's second to the baby. But here's the deal. Jacob has Joseph in his old age. He he never thought he was going to have any more kids, and so he's got this incredibly special place in his heart for Joseph. Joseph has always been his favorite. I mean, so much so that it's obvious to the rest of the boys that Joseph is the special one. So much so, uh, just, to, just to make sure that nobody doubts it. You ready for this? Jacob makes for Joseph a special coat with all sorts of bright colors. You guys have heard of Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, right? That was Joseph. So he just plugs it in at night and it glows the rest of the day. Right? But no, understand the moment. Get the moment. When they say coat, this isn't winter wear. It's just what he wore on the... T- and he would have worn it every single day. So think about this. Every single day, his brothers have to see Joseph wearing this bright coat to remind them that daddy loves him better than us. Look, if you've got favorites, you should at least pretend you don't. Okay, I'm just, this is not healthy home life. Now, if things aren't bad enough, there's been a moment... And Joseph has actually caught his brothers messing around while they were supposed to be watching the sheep. He comes back. He narks on them to his dad. So he's kind of got the tattletale thing going on, which just endears his brothers to him that much more. Add to this. Add to this. That God gives Joseph a dream. And the dream goes something like this. Hey, we were out in the field. I was binding up some wheat. And my sheath of wheat stood straight up. And when you brothers bound your little sheaves of wheat, all of your sheaves of wheat bowed down to my sheaf of wheat. And his brothers go, are you trying to tell us that we're going to bow down to you one day? You're going to rule over us? And he goes, well, just saying. You know, God gives the dreams. I'm just the interpreter. Hate the dream, not the dreamer. And the Bible says, you ready for this? The Bible says his brothers loathe him. They, The Bible says they get so frustrated, so angry with Joseph that they cannot even manage a pleasant word in his direction. I mean, we're talking dysfunctional family all over the place. It's so bad that dad figures out that it's bad, and he actually pulls Joseph off of sheep herding duty. Now, this is another affront because they... Joseph's the second to the youngest. Watching sheep is for kids. Which means if he pulls Joseph off the duty, then the older brothers have to fill in for him. And boy, that was joyful. Sitting out and watching sheep while little brother's sitting at home in his technicolor dream coat watching reruns of Gunsmoke. That's a lot of fun. One day, Jacob sends Joseph to check on the brothers. It's been a while since he's heard from them. He says, hey, go check on your brothers, but then head back on home, you know, before anything weird happens. Joseph goes to meet his brothers. Here's where we pick up. It's Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 23. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe that he was wearing. Remember? The bright robe. And they took him and they threw him in a cistern. Now here's what we need to know. A cistern is kind of like a dry well. It's different because it doesn't have a water source. A cistern was just kind of a carved out bowl and you'd let all the water that ran off collect in the cistern. And it happens to be empty at this time of year. Uh, It was empty and there was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down uh, to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, well, what will we gain if we kill our brother? See, the idea up until this point had been, hey, let's take that brightly colored robe. Uh, We'll rip it up. We'll put a little bit of animal blood on it. We'll take it back to dad. Tell him we found this in the road. Oh, well. And now they see the caravan coming. Come, come, he says, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let's not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. Maybe we should be kind to him. Our own flesh and blood, his brothers all agreed. And so when the Midianite merchants came by, the brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Now, guys, 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 guys. You get that this is Joseph... God, where are you? I mean, this is that moment, right? I mean, Joseph's mind, and Joseph would go, look, I'm, I get it, I get it. I'm a little bit of a tattletale, and I, you know, whether it was naivety or whatever, you know, I, I probably shouldn't have told my brothers about the dream. That just kind of rubbed in their face. I, I get it. But I haven't done anything, right? I haven't done anything to deserve being thrown into a cistern and sold into slavery. I mean, God, come on. This is, where are you? Because God, look, 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 if you were here when my brothers did this horribly unfair thing to me, you would have just like called down lightning from heaven, killed them on the spot. And then I could have sang, Praise God from whom? Right? I mean, that would have been a great God moment. Or, better this, the Ishmaelites would have come by, they would have kidnapped my brothers, they wouldn't have seen me because I was in the cistern, and they would have taken them off, and then I would have eventually crawled out, I would have been the only brother left, it would have been a good day. But God, how can this be happening? Where where are you when I need you? And it's going to usher in a season in Joseph's life. The in-between season. Where Joseph is going to have to make a fundamental decision about his life. Do I believe that as all of these things unfold... And guys, it's it's literally just going to get worse and worse and worse... Do I believe I'm on my own or do I believe that just maybe God is with me? And Joseph, despite all the evidence, despite everything that happens, is going to simply choose in this moment of his life to do what anybody would do if they really believed that God was still with them. Back to the passage. Chapter 39. Now Joseph uh, had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him. Think about this. Here's this rich kid who probably had servants of his own is now facing, being in a foreign land, being a servant to a foreign master. I mean, his life has been absolutely turned on its head. And then, if that wasn't enough, watch what the Bible says next because it's outrageous. This is, this is wild. Verse uh, 21, here's what it says. The Lord was with joseph i don't know about you. i read that and i go whoa 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 it's a good thing you put that there because i would have never come up with that conclusion i would have never come to that on my own because i'm just here to deal look like if you were really with joseph god then wouldn't things be different than this wouldn't good people be getting good things and wouldn't bad people be getting bad things But instead, in this story, bad people are getting good things and good people are getting bad things. I mean, look, if you were really with Joseph, wouldn't it be his brothers who were in Egypt right now and they'd be working on pyramids and wouldn't have any change for the Coke machine? I mean, wouldn't that be the story? What do you mean you were with Joseph The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord had given him success. Isn't that interesting? His heathen master, his master who has no regard for God, sees something so remarkable in this young man's life that he stops and says, Man, the Lord is with you, dude. That's remarkable. Uh... The Lord was with him, and the Lord gave him success in everything he did. And Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. And Potiphar put him in charge of his entire household and entrusted him in the care of everything he owned. If I'm Joseph in this moment, and I'm going, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. So my brothers have beat me up. My brothers have sold me into slavery. I'm now living in a distant land. I'm living this moment with confidence, and I'm trying to follow you. And let me get this right. You're blessing my slave master because of me. Here's what I'm thinking, God. Wouldn't it be better if you bless me because of me? I mean, wouldn't that just be a better plan? I don't, I don't get this. How does a 17-year-old young man navigate a moment in which, God, where are you? And now, it only gets worse. And here's what I'm just going to tell you. Joseph... Joseph's not that remarkable. Joseph simply does what any 17-year-old would do. Who'd grown up in a dysfunctional family, who'd been beat up by his brothers, who'd been sold into slavery, and who was now working like crazy so that someone else could be blessed. He he does exactly what any other 17-year-old would do. Who was confident that God was still with him. Guys, I'm just telling you. What you believe God does or doesn't do in the in between time will change how you behave in the in between time. Back to the passage. Verse 5. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything that Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything that he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not even concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of him and said, Come to bed with me. Now guys, guys, guys. If it wasn't bad... It just got worse. You you realize Joseph is in an absolute no win. How do you you get daylight from here? Because here's the deal. Look, look. If he agrees to sleep with her, he runs the risk of being found out and then disciplined. Or that she then tires of him and throws him away. Or if he refuses to, he gets her scorn and she potentially makes up a story, which she eventually does. How do you win from here? And here's this guy who's done everything he knows to be faithful to God, to live in the in-between time as if he believed that God was with him, and it leads him to an absolute no-win moment. And watch what Joseph does next. Verse 8. But he refused. With me in charge, he said. My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. No one is greater in his house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because, oh, by the way, you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing against God? You mean the God who hasn't been faithful to me yet? The God who hasn't showed up yet. The God who hasn't bailed me out yet. The God who hasn't said anything outright yet. And in this moment, Joseph chooses, think about this, to be faithful to a God who has not been faithful to him. I mean, at least it feels that way, right? I, I simply choose in this moment, and I know, I know, I know. I know the evidence isn't there. I can't, I can't explain to you what's going on in this moment. I, I, I know. But I simply choose, in this moment, to be faithful to a God who it really doesn't feel like has been faithful to me. Guys, let's just be honest. This is the hard part, right? I mean, this is the part where you and I bail on the marriage. This, this is the part where you and I compromise. This is the part where we go, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, God, I've been hanging with you so far, but if you're going to let it go this far off the track if you're going to be that unfaithful to me, then I'm just telling you, I'm going to do what I have to do. And yet Joseph, Joseph in this moment simply does what any young man would do who'd grown up in a dysfunctional home, who'd been unfairly sold into slavery, beat up by his brothers, and put into an absolute no-win situation would do if that young man believed that God was still with him. She's frustrated with him. She, uh, She doesn't relent. She keeps pursuing him day after day. And uh, guys, I'm just going to guess. I I think she was probably a pretty good-looking woman. Here's here's I, I get. I'm reading in, but here's how I get there. If she was homely as a mud fence, I, I I'm just thinking Joseph goes, lady, not on your best day, and just walks away. Right? No big deal. But here's what happens next. It says that she corners him. There weren't the people were out of the house. They're pretty much alone. She corners him, and his reaction in that moment is literally to flee. He's fleeing because of 98 Pound woman's going to overpower him? No. He's fleeing because he says, if I stay here one more second, I I could easily do something that I don't need to. And I'm just telling you, I'm sweating bullets of temptation right now. i got to get out of here. And the Bible says that he turns and begins to run. She grabs his coat. He, in desperation, literally just slithers out of the coat and runs. She then uses it against him. Her husband comes home. She lays the coat on the bed and lays down next to it and weeps and says, Guess what that Hebrew you brought into our house tried to do? And he believes every word. Verse 28 Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were combined. Think about this. Right. He's actually getting punished as if he had done the wrong thing. Doing the right thing has gotten him no advantage. He's getting the same penalty he would have gotten if he'd actually slept with Potiphar's wife. But while Joseph was there in prison, okay, you ready for this? I mean, if God hasn't already, like, blown your brain yet, the Lord was with him. Are you kidding? If I'm Joseph at this point, I'm here's what I'm saying. I'm saying, God, could you go be with someone else for a while? I'm just telling you. You being with me is not working out so well. So could you just go be with someone else? I mean, here's what I'm thinking. Could you go be with my brothers for a while? That'd be really good. Then they could come hang out with me. I think God has had to say this over and over again because we would have never come up with it on our own. It would have never occurred to us that in the in-between time that God was actually in the room. The Lord was with him and showed him kindness and granted him favor with the prison warden. Big whoopee deal. I'm just, guys, I'm just, I may want favor, but I don't want favor with the warden. Because the only way you're going to get favor with the warden is you got to be in the wrong place. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison and was made responsible for all, those, uh, all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph <coughs> and gave him success in whatever he did in prison. And Joseph... Joseph simply does in that moment what any young man would do who'd been beaten by his brothers and sold into slavery and falsely accused and sent to prison and had to watch the prison warden prosper for all the work he was doing. He simply did what any young man in that situation would do who was confident That God was still with him. You wanna hear the good part? (laughs) There's a there's God moment in the story. There's a moment that God comes riding up on the, and you go, oh my goodness, wow, I had no idea. I mean, really? Here's what happens. While Joseph is there in prison, there actually are a couple other prisoners sent down in. One of them is a uh, cupbearer, the other one is a baker both of them work for the Pharaoh. While they're there, they have kind of a weird dream one night. And so the next day at breakfast, they're talking about it. Joseph overhears and says, hey, you know, tell me about your dreams. You know, God has this thing where he kind of lets me know what's going on with dreams sometimes. So the cupbearer tells the dream and Joseph says, hey, this is totally cool news. Uh, In three days, you're going to be totally restored. You're going to get your old job back with promotion. It's going to be totally cool. The baker then turns to him and says, well, here's my dream. And Joseph "Here's the dream. And he says, well, uh, your dream's a little different. Uh, they're going to lop your head off. Uh, they're going to hang your body out, and the birds of the air are going to eat your body. Now, I could be wrong, but I never have been. And sure enough, it goes just like uh, Joseph has interpreted Uh, When the cupbearer is getting taken out of the prison, Joseph turns to him and says, Hey, look, dude, dude, if you have a moment, just remember me, man. There's going to be a moment you're going to be in front of Pharaoh. Just say there's this guy down there, and he's innocent, and I know he's innocent, and just mention me to Pharaoh. And the Bible says that as the cupbearer leaves the prison, he promptly forgets Joseph. For you ready? Two years. Two more years. And then one day, Pharaoh has a dream. And it bothers him, and so he begins to say, hey, I need someone to tell me what this dream means. I had this dream, and these five or seven fat cows got up out of the Nile River, and then there were like these seven emaciated skeleton-type cows. They came up out of the Nile. They ate the fat cows, and I'm just trying to figure out what this means, but it was funky, and uh, no one can tell him. No one can interpret it. And then there's the cupbearer who goes, oh, Kind of embarrassing, but uh, there's this guy uh, down in the prison, and you know he told me my dream once, and maybe he can help you. And so, sure enough, they call Joseph up, and Joseph gets in front of Pharaoh, and he says, "Oh no, Pharaoh! God's told me exactly what this is. The seven fat cows are seven great years. There's going to be plenty of harvest. The seven emaciated, skeletal type those are seven years of famine, and the seven years of famine are going to consume the good years. It's going to be—you'll never know they even happened. So here's my advice: here's what you got to do. Well, you have the seven good years. Take some of the harvest, set it aside in some storehouses so that you can supplement during the other, and then you'll survive, you'll be okay. And I think you got to put someone you can trust in charge and see how that turns out for you. And here's what happens. Chapter 41, starting in verse 37. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to the officials. So Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone who is like this man? One in whom the Spirit of God... And that again, people who have no idea of God are seeing God all over Joseph. And then Pharaoh says to Joseph, "...since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all that my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you." So the Pharaoh said to Joseph, "...I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt." Then Pharaoh took out his signet ring from his finger, put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And the people shouted before him, make way for this important man. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. There's God. Wow. Let me ask you a question. What if Joseph... Had stumbled in the in-between time. What, 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 what if when he first got sold into slavery, he had spent all of his energy, all of his plan, trying to find a way to escape from Pharaoh or from Potiphar's house, so that he could sneak back and narc on his brothers? What, what, what if, what if when he was falsely accused, he had gone into just a slur of obscenities and just railed on everybody around and how unfair and how horrible the Egyptians were? What what if when he had gotten to prison, he had sat there in a stupor of depression and just said, look, look." I mean, if this is where following God gets me, I'm just going to sit in my cell. I'm just going to wait for God to show up and do nothing. Do you think the story ends up the same? Or does what happened in the story happen because a young man simply did what any young man in his situation would do? If he believed that God was with him. Which takes you and I to a huge question. (laughs) What would someone do who's in exactly the moment you're in right now? Facing the very thing that you're facing right now. Struggling with the thing that you're struggling with right now. What what, what does a single Christian adult do who was exactly like you? What what would someone who was struggling financially the exact same way that you're struggling financially right now do? What would somebody whose kids were going crazy on them right now do in a situation just like your situation? If they believed that God was with them, because that answer changes the in-between time, changes our lives. So here's my challenge. What if you and I committed ourselves for the next 30 days to simply live every moment of our life, every moment we start to feel fear, every moment we start to feel anxiety, every moment with stress begins, and we simply stop in that moment and say, no, 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 I'm going to choose to live this moment the way that anybody who was in the situation that I'm in would live this moment if they were confident that God was with them. And what if you and I lived that way for 30 days? We'd live different, wouldn't we? Let's pray. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we we just have to say this out loud. Man, the in-between time is the hard time. That space between where in the world did you go? How did this happen? How can, how can this be so unfair? And the, the gap between there and, oh, my goodness, there's God. He's showing up and he's setting everything right. That space in between is terrifying for us, God. It's the hardest part of our lives to navigate. It's the stressful part of our lives. And, God, it's not wrong. It's not wrong to feel that way. It's just wrong to stay that way. And we simply do this. We simply choose that in those moments, in those moments when we can't justify our decision, in those moments when we can't explain to anybody else why we're trusting you, in those moments, we simply choose to live like anybody else would live that moment if they were confident that God was with them.